Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. He's written biographies of John Lennon and Paul McCartney, as well as what many regard as the definitive biography of the Beatles, called Shout, published in 1981. So no one is more qualified than Philip Norman to write a biography of George Harrison, whom he calls the reluctant Beatle. Norman's experience as a biographer of music giants also includes Eric Clapton, who plays a pivotal role in this biography of his best friend. It's a messy story in many ways, and you do get the impression, at least to start with, that Norman finds Harrison a bit charmless. But Harrison also had an interesting and unpredictable second act to his life after the Beatles, and by then, Norman seems to warm to his subject. Now, we recorded this interview down an old-fashioned phone line between Sydney and London, and at times Philip does sound a bit muffled, as he must have got weary of holding the phone to his ear for over an hour, but I hope you'll stick with it. Let's go back to the obituary that you wrote when George died. You, you write fascinatingly in the acknowledgements of your book that this was a case very much of getting it wrong. What was it that you said in the obituary? I didn't actually get it totally wrong, but it probably wasn't the moment to say some of it. This was George's death came as a great surprise to a lot of people, unfortunately, in 2001. And I had really not looked at George very much since I wrote my Beatles biography in 1981, Shout. And he had always seemed to be rather sort of, perhaps the least sort of personable of the four Beatles, the one whose charm was never quite infallible, who always seemed to be signalling a kind of discontentment for what everyone assumed was the most wonderful existence and wonderful good luck. And I did say that he had always seemed to be miserable and that he was a sort of a, a bit of an acquired taste as a Beatle. None of this was completely untrue, but it wasn't really the moment to have said it. And in fact, I had to work, this is no excuse, of course, but working against a very heavy deadline to write 3,000 words, which all these obituaries were very, very long to George. They were all over front pages. They weren't just sort of on the insides of papers which was some indication, really, of how much prestige and how much sort of he had really contributed to the Beatles that was being rather belatedly recognised. So it was a, a bad, a, a bad a misjudgment, really, of mood and tone. When I came to write this biography of him, George, you know, George Harrison, The Reluctant Beatle, I had really needed to write the biographies of John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and also the biography of Eric Clapton, George's best friend, to realise quite the paradox of being George. The paradox of being George was that he seemed to be one of the foremost blessed beings on the face of the earth, and yet on the inside suffered continual sort of snubs and slights, being underappreciated and sidelined because of the enormous talent, the very very prolific talent as songwriters of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And he had to really work hard for years to get any sort of equality. He never really got equality, but get any sort of footing, creative footing inside the Beatles, apart from being the lead guitarist. That took him a long, long time. Absolutely. Now, just staying with the obituary for a moment, when you wrote it, I suppose, in your defence, you weren't thinking about the fact that you might want to speak to George's widow, Olivia, for a biography, but it did mean that it, it gave you a severe disadvantage and gave you a handicap. Did you, despite the obituary, ask her 
to make allowances for everything you've just said to me and to forgive you, or did you just not even try? I didn't say ask for forgiveness, no. What I hoped was that the treatment of George in the John Lennon biography and the McCartney biography and the Eric Clapton biography, because they were so very close, George and, and Clapton, showed that, in fact, I had somewhat sort of repented and had much more understanding of him, and I hope that would be the case. Unfortunately, the, the sample of my work that a helpful Apple that's the Beatles Apple Company executive <laughs> show to Olivia was not uh, <laughs> any of these biographies, but it, that that obituary was still like a sort of like a vampire, you know, an undead obituary <laughs> on the internet after all that time. But in fact, the the Apple executive who'd been very friendly up, up to that point, uh, always very friendly, said, I suppose he's going to put the kibosh on you talking to everyone else now. But of course, but actually it didn't. And I expected people to shun me, but actually nobody really did shun me. And I talked to a lot of people uh, very close to George. I mean, like Sir Michael Palin, who was probably one of his closest friends, actually. And uh, it didn't... Although it would have been nice to talk to Olivia Harrison, and I hope perhaps I still will, because I hope this book will show that my intentions in the end were honourable. Well, exactly. I was just going to say, Philip, that if she's read it now, I mean, I think your characterization of her particularly, you know, we'll come to this incident later on, obviously, but she did save his life and you describe that moment very powerfully. I just want to go back to, you mentioned Shout and obviously we have to talk about Shout. It really is the seminal sort of Beatles book. Did you go back through your Shout archive to see if there was anything that you'd overlooked in the writing of that book or for you is that just the past and and there was nothing more for you to extract from the source material for that well i have to tell you a bit about the, the background to shout which was that while i was writing it which was the end of the 70s it was published in 1981 everyone told me i was mad to be writing a book about the beatles everything was already known about the beatles i was wasting my time it was an absurd thing to be doing and uh, i mean this was rather a sort of a burden to have to carry for a couple of years but one of the one of the things perhaps i would have done differently although this was not an era when serious books were written about popular music mm. um, i didn't take it beyond the point of the beatles actually breaking up and there was so much to say about the 70s, particularly when, although they were no longer together as a band, they were still a force as a band, and they were still all doing very, very interesting things. And George actually was surging after those years of neglect and being sidelined and patronised by John and Paul. It was George's debut album, which was actually a three-disc set, which outsold the other two and still does to this day. So there was, you know, I could have gone further, but I, when it came to finishing the book, I thought possibly that I, I hadn't, they were all in denial. This was another interesting thing. They, it was, being, a, being a Beatle was really quite a horrible experience in many ways for, for all of them. And none of them really wanted to talk about anything to do with the past, not even McCartney, who now does sort of 30 Beatles songs in a, in a two-hour performance. But then they just wanted to get on with their solo careers. And it, it was quite amazing that George sort of then surged ahead. But I did sort of stop it rather, you know, at the point where they're no longer the Beatles. Well, it's interesting that you talk there about denial because, you know, in some cases, in some of the quotes in your book now, I wonder whether you think that that denial persists 
or whether they've gone into a kind of phase where when you ask them about George, they sort of romanticize and mythologize him. So, you know, you've got Paul McCartney saying he was just my baby brother, really. And and you take that with a very large pinch of salt. Well, the, the Beatle Wars, I mean, were really in the 70s and, and some of the 80s. And they were highly politicized, and you know that new alliances were being formed and collapsing all the time. And George was one minute he was playing on John's Imagine album, playing a, a really sort of nasty-sounding guitar solo to go with John's horrible song "How Do You Sleep," mm. which was anti-Paul. Mm. Um, later on, George is having a bit of a reconciliation with Paul, and this goes on and on, really, like these little nation states going to war and then declaring peace. You know, for the next twenty years. So it, it didn't didn't stop at all. And of course, nobody imagined then that a band could break up and still sell millions of records. That was the other thing. That's what, when Alan Klein came as the manager at the very late stage, Klein was trying to mop up as much money as he could while they were still a viable commodity. No one imagined that they would, you know, today they're still, you know, selling zillions all the time because they they have become actually more than a, more than a pop group. They're this kind of religion. Absolutely. Anywhere you go in the world the name, the names of the individuals or the name the Beatles gets a response. So what do you make, Philip, of the release of this last song? I mean, we're talking at a very funny moment, really, because Paul has just been touring here. And as you say, he's got this epic, epic show which displays phenomenal stamina. He's on stage for three hours at the age of 80. And of course, we've got this new song. And then there's the whole yeah. potential of reworking songs, using AI, mixing their voices with other artists. I mean, this could go on and on and on forever. I don't think it will, because there were only four songs on that tape, two of which were used in the Beatles anthology. This one is, is just terrible. There's no other word for it. It doesn't sound like the Beatles, doesn't sound like John Lennon. It sounds a bit like an outtake by the Electric Light Orchestra in the mid-70s. Ouch! Um, and, uh, well, sorry about that. But also, uh, as for AI, I, I, what was AI doing? Was it out making a cup of tea when they were actually recording? I mean, I just don't know. If it's just supposed to have cleaned up John's vocal you know, track, well, it doesn't seem to have at all. It's just a mess. Let's just go back to the beginning of the story, because one of the things that I found very touching in your book is George's mother's absolute reverence, really, for him. Her love for him is absolutely unwavering. And I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about his parents and his beginnings. Well, of course, uh, they were very, very humble beginnings in a tiny little house in the district of Wavertree in Liverpool, very, very working class. Paul and John were of a different class. That was one of the other ways of sort of, you know, making George feel a little bit sort of downtrodden because he was never really made conscious of how he spoke with that broad Liverpool accent until he got to know John Lennon, who was brought up by his aunt, his aunt Mimi, who was the most ferocious snob. And even John was a bit sort of, you know, a bit embarrassed by George's accent. Paul's father was, was, had a, you know, a, a sort of lower management job in the cotton industry. But Paul's mother, uh, who died when Paul was 14, had been a nurse. And under the peculiarities of the British class system, nurses were honorary middle class. 
So Paul got by on the class front without Mimi, but George was just always being sort of overtly sort of insulted by Aunt Mimi when he went, you know, when he when he ever went to the house to call for John or anything. And that was another reason, you know, why he felt discriminated against and sort of a subordinate member. He called himself latterly the economy class beetle. Yes, and, be and, and that tag, the economy class beetle, how long did he have that chip on his shoulder, do you think? Well, it, it, if, a, if a chip was on George's shoulder, it stayed there. <laughs> but in fact, his parents, although his father drove one of the corporation, Liverpool Corporation buses, they were a very, very united family. It was the only family without any sort of trauma in the family. All the other three in the future, Ringo in the future as well, had something, you know, some trauma in the family. These, these were ha- happy parents, happy together, three older siblings who were all not, got on well and were happy with each other and were nice to George. Even so, he comes out of it really as this rather misanthropic character, although he was evidently very spoiled as a child. And uh, when he wanted a guitar, you know, he had the very best there was to buy. Mm. Uh, he had started on a little sort of uh, Spanish-style mo- model that soon graduated to this lovely big Hofner, shiny Hofner guitar with a cutaway and, and tuning knobs. And it was probably, you know, it was far better guitar than John or Paul had. I think that was really why they wanted him in the group, really, because it was the guitar rather than George. You say that obviously John and Paul were highly competitive and that's what yielded such riches. By comparison, in terms of temperament, I mean, we've talked a little bit about him being a rather sort of, well, you characterise him as rather dour and graceless and terse in, in many instances. Was George a bit of a loner and did he not have any kind of competitive streak? Well, he had a very strong creative streak. I mean, I call him the creator, uh, the reluctant Beatle. He wasn't a reluctant musician at all. He taught himself from the age of 14 how to play the, the licks, the solos on American records that no one else could work, or very few, certainly of his age, could work out for themselves the way he did by simply persevering and listening to them over and over again and t- teaching himself. So he wasn't at all a reluctant musician. The reluctance came in later with the screaming, the absolutely mindless screaming of the era we call Beatlemania, the first Beatlemania era. And he, he really resented the fact that these, these solos that he crafted and copied and perfected were being drowned and were not listened to. That was what he really dis- disliked. You know, that was the reluctant side of him. I should say that as well that he was the only one whose parents, particularly his mother, who was an you know, absolutely lovely woman full of personality and, and full of energy. She was terribly, terrifically energetic person and absolutely supported him, but had a lovely sort of streak herself, a slightly anarchic streak. And that's why she got on so well with John Lennon. She said they were just a pair of fools because she just got John immediately, which aren't, you know, <laughs> Paul's dad was very worried by John, said to Paul, he'll get you into trouble, son. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, so, and, and then, yes, later on, she would, uh, she would not only answer his fan mail, which came by the sack load, but she would obviously sometimes continue correspondence with these young women who had written to George, and she would continue writing to them. They'd be her pen pals for years and years afterwards, and 
strange women would come up to George later life and say, I used to write to your mum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and uh, their whole sort of their, their quite small house where they were living was like a grotto full of this, all these this stuff that George was sent, you know, like banners saying we love George, giant teddy bears, that sort of thing. They absolutely loved it. And of course, it was absolute torture to John's snobbish aunt Mimi and Jim McCartney, Paul's dad, didn't know what to make of it, nor did Ringo's mum. But Louise probably would have liked to, to have been a bit of a performer herself she ran you know she did think like she ran ballroom dancing classes at the busman social club that sort of thing you know and of course she was just totally oh she had oh, the other great thing about her was yes at the top of the stairs when you went into their house there was a life-size photograph blow-up of george at the top of the stairs <laughs> in his beetle kit and his fringe so that no one who came into the house could miss seeing this now, and yet, and yet, you make the point that there is no plaque on his home. There is nothing to denote where he lived or his birthplace. What is this about? I just don't know. I mean, there have been various suggestions. Although, I mean, Liverpool is, has been notoriously slow to recognise its most famous sons, and both uh, John's former home and Paul's are now... National Trust properties and there are tours of them, not George's and not Brian Epstein's house. It's only recently that a rather modest statue, the manager who really was the making of the Beatles without any experience in that sort of world at all. It's only very recently there's quite a modest little bronze statue to Brian Epstein near the site of the Epstein electrical store in the middle of Liverpool. It's, it's perverse, isn't it? It's difficult to understand why there wouldn't be another sort of place on the sort of Stations of the Cross or on the pilgrimage route, if you like. Yeah, and it, there's even, there is, a, there is a plaque even at the, in the house in West Derby, which was the Casbah Club, which Pete Best, you know, the, Pete Best, the sacked Beatle, his mother started a little sort of basement club when the Beatles were still the Quarrymen. And that has a plaque, but not... Not George's, not the, not the house, the tiny little house. I mean, Dickensian, you know, with an outside toilet and only four rooms where this large family lived. Nothing to mark it at all, although people, of course, know it and do make pilgrimages there. And this snub continues later through his life. So by the time that he's done the concert for Bangladesh, which is a pivotal moment in terms of rock music and philanthropy coming together in this unique way, by the time he dies, he's raised millions for UNICEF. And John and Paul have got their knighthoods and all these honorifics. And he's still just stuck with the MBE he got for being a Beatle. That's right. I mean, the, the other great injustice is that Brian Epstein didn't even get the MB, MBE, which is the very, you know, the most humble decoration, uh, the lowest on the list. George, yes, had raised untold millions beyond the concert for Bangladesh. But the, the, the fascinating thing about George is that he, he is a massive contradiction. Mm. So he can rise to the heights, I mean, of nobility, really, because the concert for Bangladesh wasn't a question of his telling his underlings to organize it. He did most a lot of the organizing himself, ringing up people, asking them to be in this concert, which turned, turned into two concerts. 
so he's the height of nobility at the next minute he's the the depth of disloyalty and sleaze by sleeping with ringo's wife uh, first wife breaking the first law of beetledom you do not do that to another beetle's wife I wanted to ask you, Philip, about Peter Jackson. How does Peter Jackson's reworking of Michael Lindsay Hogg's footage for the Get Back documentary show him during those sessions? I wish Michael, I wish Peter Jackson would stick to Hobbits and the First World War, quite honestly, because you don't give the making of a documentary on the Beatles to a fan, a fan who has got no idea what to leave out. So you get this, it's been called the the mammoth get back documentary. I prefer the elephantine get back documentary because it's much of it actually succeeds in making the Beatles boring. Mm. No one has ever done that before. Michael Lindsay Hogg, who finally put together the film that they'd made under such uncomfortable circumstances around 1969, is a very good film. Michael Lindsay Hogg is is and is still a great director. Peter Jackson is just, I'm a fan. We Mm. don't care that you're a fan. Please don't keep telling us this. He really should not be, you know, given this terrific sort of license to sort of spin out this story without any idea of, uh, you know, proportion. He actually makes, uh, although he said, I, I called it the Pollyanna version of the Beatles Get Back album because he said they were all loving each other so much while they were making this. Of course, they weren't. John was on heroin to start with. There was a fist fight off camera what during the making of, or the attempted making of that album when in fact George said something so horrible about Yoko that John attacked him physically. It wasn't caught on camera at all. There was another moment when Lindsay Hogg's cameras weren't there, but a Canadian crew were recording when John pulled a whitey, which means goes completely white and then throws up, which is a symptom of heroin use. This is this was not this lovely sort of, you know, Pollyanna playground at all. And in fact, the bit, the famous bit where George sort of answers Paul back and gets very, very stroppy. Jackson actually stays on that too long, and you see Paul actually taking it much further. Paul walks off the set. This is all on a film set. Comes back in a moment. But actually, the row is much worse than it's always looked previously because Jackson cannot stop putting everything in to this huge mishmash. Did you talk to Peter Jackson at all for this book? <laughs> no, I know. I, no, I never do. I just the the worst sort of boring, didactic, obsessive fan is the most boring person in the universe. Now you did manage to talk to George Martin before he died, obviously, and, and a even... lot before that as well. Yes, obviously, fact, Martin at quite an early stage said, admitted that he, as he put it, he was always rather beastly to George in the recording studio because he was so taken up with this amazing talent of Lennon and McCartney that made such creative leaps all the time. And Martin couldn't help be fascinated by that. And yet you point out to us all those moments that are such sort of 
crucial moments in in Beatles sound, like the four notes, I think, that introduce And I Love Her. Just four notes and you say made up on the spot. So with George in that particular instance, is his brilliance improvised? Well, it's it's very much yes, or or perhaps ad libbed is better because Paul or John, firstly Paul and John together, but later on individually, would bring in a new song, and George and Ringo had to pick it up in a very short time, and George would usually, nearly always improvise or ad lib something, which was linger would linger in the memory as long as the vocal, in so many ways. Martin said he used to. Originally, he would just lead George to the piano and spell out on the piano, Martin, the solo he thought George should play. Right. He gave that up quite quickly because at the beginning, Martin was... I mean, these producers, they weren't called producers, they were called A&R men, artist and repertoire men, were absolutely... uh, They were omnipotent. They signed the artists, they decided what the artists would, would record and then recorded them. And Martin absolute had this complete, total power. He was a despot, very nice man in many ways, but still had this power. But he soon had to yield it, of course, because Lennon and McCartney in particular were making these extraordinary leaps, and every single album was, you know, an extraordinary sort of, you know, advance on the last one. And was George the sort of musician who was interested in lingering in the control room or was he someone who just did his bit in the studio and then left? Well, it, they were still, I mean, they, they had a great sort of unity even with this sort of inequality within them. And actually later on, George became a really good producer. Paul was a terrific producer and John was never very interested in it. But George, and particularly as the warfare went on inside Apple, their Apple company, there was an Apple record label, which Paul really ran and dictated. After Paul walked out, really, over the appointment of Alan Klein as, as their manager, George was the one really left in charge of the Apple, the Apple label and did some very good work and produced a lot of things after that. And, and actually was a producer, he, was a, he became a film producer too, a, fil, a film mogul in fact. There were lots of sides to him that didn't exist to, to the others. John was more than a musician, of course, he was a poet and an artist and all the rest of it. But George had surprising other dimensions. So another contradiction of, of George, he, he cares passionately about nature and the environment and flowers things like that, his gardens, but he cannot live without the smell of petroleum from the pits at Grand Prix Racing. So he's a huge Formula One fan as well. Just as he makes an album railing against what he calls the material world, but he also writes the first pop song complaining about income tax. So wherever you look with George, there is a contradiction. Absolutely everywhere there's a contradiction. He could be very, very generous He could be very, very small-minded and petty. I think my favourite paradox that you point out, Philip, is that he actually became more stressed after he started to learn to meditate. Oh, yes, and more more paranoid and more bad-tempered. And his (laughs) wife, his first wife, Patty, said, you know, he was lovely until he learned to meditate. (laughs) And there's Derek Taylor there. They're great. They're wonderful PR uh, press officer. 
was on a plane with George and George was mumbling and with his beads and everything and the, the cabin attendant said something very simple like, would you like your lunch now, Mr. Harrison? To which he replied, fuck off, can't you see I'm meditating? Yeah, he hasn't quite got to sort of a spiritual, spiritual, I don't know, nirvana at that point yet, has he? Except Patty said it was because he desperately wanted to be a spiritual being. But he never fully became a spiritual being because he always chain-smoked, which was the, the origin of the horrible cancer, the eventual, the first bout of cancer that he had. And he was a terrific... You know, he, in fact, the, one of the things he got from Hindu culture and mythology, he, he, he thought he'd like to be like Krishna, the love god, who could have unlimited concubines. So, not, again, not terribly spiritual. just stay for a moment with Patty because she's obviously a fantastic source for you so you didn't get to speak to Olivia Harrison but you get the first chunk of Georgia's life in very vivid detail from Patty can you just tell me a little bit about how you approached her was she immediately enthusiastic and what you think is the most important aspect of her testimony if you like well she was the inspiration for George's song, Something, which even Frank Sinatra, who, who detested the Beatles for years, eventually said was the, one of the great love songs of the 20th century, mm -hmm. even though he misassigned it and said it was by Lennon and McCartney. So George, again, would be fuming somewhere about that. But she was a uh, she was a, really is, was and is a wonderful person because she has no bitterness at all. She has a lot of humor about their time together, and which didn't end well. And, and, and she, she left with a pitifully small divorce settlement. I mean, re really ridiculous. When you think of what you know, people get today in settlements, it was you know, just insultingly small. But she just didn't care. She really wasn't in it for the money. She, and she really still, I think, George was the love of her life and still is. But I was very, I've been very lucky, and in fact, uh, even after the book was going into production, I was, we would have, we have lunch every so often, and she was still telling me things, and I said, why didn't you tell me that when I could have put them into the book? <laughs> <laughs> but she, she, she was a wonderful, first, I really got to know her when I did the Eric Clapton biography, because, of course, eventually she, she leaves George. George, provoked by blatant infidelity, George eventually drives her away, of course, and she goes off with his best friend, Eric Clapton, and, and, and is there, therefore, in line for the next 18 years of alcoholism on Clapton's part. Mm. But she, she just recounts the whole thing with such humour. She finally catches George and 
Ringo's first wife, Maureen, in flagrante. Maureen would turn up at the house. George would actually be having sex with Maureen in this huge house, Friar Park, while Patty was in the house. And finally, Patty gets tired of this and goes looking for him. Takes a long time because there are about 20 bedrooms, quite hard to find the right bedroom. And then bangs on the door and it's answered by George. And in the background, Maureen is lying on a mattress. And George says, oh, she's uh, feeling a bit tired, so she's having a bit of a lie down. <laughs> That's supposed to be enough of an explanation for this. Patty, many women on the European continent, perhaps even in this country, might have then resorted to a 12-bore shotgun. Patty goes and gets a couple of water pistols and squirts them with water. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very Patty Boyd uh, response. But there's something also about the way the two men, George and Eric Clapton, sort of discuss her as if they were talking about trading or swapping guitars. And ultimately, I think what's very telling in your account of this whole tortured and very drawn-out episode is that you make it clear that, in effect, George chose Clapton over Patty, and he actually forgave Clapton for cuckolding him. Well, yes, I mean, the, the, these are two gigantic sort of... Uh, <laughs> gigantic male chauvin... I mean... The, the phrase doesn't describe these these rock stars, in, particularly in those days. And you're quite right, they did treat their wives and girlfriends like possessions to be traded in if necessary. Clapton had adored Patty from a distance for years and years and had written this sort of this absolutely brilliant rock song of thwarted lust called Layla. So he would only, he would be confessing this from the stage while still unable to confess it to Patty or even to George. But in the end, with everything, once he achieved something, whether it was a guitar or it was this idealised woman, he didn't want it anymore. Mm. Once he got it, he was tired of it. And, and so he and George became, strangely enough, weirdly enough, closer after Clapton had, had gone off with Patty. And Patty herself felt rather side, rather forgotten. That's right. I do love the fact that you point out that when it comes to lyric writing, George didn't always get there in the first draft. So the um, <laughs> the line that you quote from something is something in the way you move attracts me like a pomegranate. That was the yes. Well, that's a bit like Paul's dummy lyric for yesterday, which was scrambled eggs. He could yes, he couldn't think of what to put, and but he was when he was talking about the song. But there, that was when the song still wasn't getting getting onto record. You know, he was just talking about the song he was working on. So many of these songs that he eventually wrote and started getting onto Beatles albums were only a small proportion of the songs he'd actually written. So when he comes to write his, or rather to record, all things must pass this monumental three disc album debut he's got a pile of songs that mm. he can draw on and he's still drawing on this backlog of songs for years into the 70s can you just talk a little bit about the song my sweet lord and the plagiarism case that haunted it for so long well it was uh, this it was really the signature track on all things must pass and it was a it was very much seen as the direction of pop music in the 70s everyone was saying what's going what's it going to be like in the 70s these 60s wonderful 60s are over and this was a 
It was a, a, an anthem for any religion and any creed with a really high-octane rock backing. Uh, Eric Clapton was leading the studio band, but a very small publishing company uh, claimed that the, the, the main riff was the same as He's So Fine by a, an African-American female group called the Chiffons. Mm. And it was. They, mm. they, they were. The, the two notes, the, the, the few notes were identical, but that wasn't the whole song at all. And George himself, in fact, he'd been trying to write a spiritual, but it was more in the sort of, in the Edwin Hawkins singer, Oh, oh Happy Day sort of mode. And he'd just been given, or just gone on to use a slide guitar, and that was all very much part of the sound. And he was rather worried about this himself. So his great friend, Billy Preston, who he'd brought into the, the Beatles' last recording sessions because Billy Preston was... So such a lovely person, so lovely and good-humoured, as well as brilliant. He thought it might lighten the tension, which he did, actually, for quite a bit. Mm. So Billy Preston is actually in the Beatles, briefly, playing playing keyboards. Billy Preston brings out an album just a bit before George's All Things Must Pass, and George gets him to do My Sweet Lord in a sort of soul arrangement, thinking if there's any trouble, it'll... That's where it'll show itself. It's rather like George testing the water with an elbow <laughs> to see if there's going to be any trouble. And there wasn't, because Billy Preston's version didn't sound like he's so fine. So, But in the end, the uh, litigation over this, for a very small publishing company with a very portentous name called Bright Tunes, <laughs> keeps on and on with this litigation against George. At the beginning, Alan Klein is still sort of managing George and not quite... The Beatles aren't quite out of Klein's clutches yet. So he's trying to settle the matter for George. But during the course of this, George gets rid of Klein as his manager, so then Klein tries to stir it up and make it even worse against George. And it isn't really settled for years and years, and George has to appear in court and you know, in a rather humiliating way and show his songwriting process. It was always accepted it was unconscious plagiarism, but still it was very similar. Eventually, George gets to own the rights to uh, He's So Fine, so he can plagiarise it as much as he wants. Yes, well, that is the privilege of being enormously wealthy, I suppose, in terms of the kind of satisfaction of revenge that you can you can exact. But did that experience, Philip, haunt him creatively in that did he then become very wary of listening to other things in case he sort of unconsciously absorbed them? He did. Yes, he did. And Patty said he was terrified and you know, he, didn't, he didn't even like to listen to the radio in case he, you know, by some sort of osmosis, you know, absorbed some uh, melody un unconsciously. Later on, he had bigger problems than that in the last few years of his life. He also didn't have all, all the money in the world in the last few years of his life. So that that did recede and other problems took their place. But, you know, the final chapters of George's life were really unremitting sort of stress and pain and suffering and and financial peril, which to, from which he was really only rescued by the, the, the Beatles anthology project, which, of course, was hugely successful. George had no interest in his past as a Beatle at all. But he had to admit that, you know, that had really bailed him out and at, at, almost at the end of his life. 
But in terms of rescue and bailing out, you talk about writing about those issues around debts, mounting debts, I think at one stage, 36 million pounds, and also a very, very messy, complicated fraud that was being perpetrated against him. George fell rather by accident into film production because his friends, the Monty Python team, he always said the Monty Python Flying Circus television series at the end of the 60s had saved his sanity during the worst years of the, the worst periods of the Beatles break breakup and the bitterness that was around they met, they went into doing feature films and they they did monty they did one the, the first one was pretty sort of irreligious and sacrilegious but the second one monty python's life of brian was totally sacrilegious and offensive to any religion in the world would never be made today at all and the finance the, the financiers only saw it as a late stage or only re, while it was actually in production and pulled the plug and again with a total contradictory behavior that George is so good at. He spent years restoring this Gothic folly called Friar Park in Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire. And it's his pride and joy and his, the gardens in particular. He, he, he loves gardening and he hopes he's going to be remembered as a gardener even more than a musician. And yet when the Python team get the plug pulled on their movie, George mortgages Friar Park to give them the money to finish the film. And by that means, he, he a film called, uh, a company called Handmade Films, with himself and his then business manager, who was an American called Dennis O'Brien, then find themselves the producers of some of the, the most significant films of the sort of British cinema renaissance of the 1980s. What George doesn't realize is that they, they have an he and Dennis O'Brien have an absolutely equal partnership, which means that when they have to take a bank loan to finance some production or other, each of them signs the guarantee for the repayment of the loan. Dennis O'Brien told George that he was co-signing these guarantees that George was signing, but he didn't. So oh, George, only George had signed these guarantees. For, this, uh, for, all, for several films which had not been successful. So if all the bank loans were called in, yes, it would have been something around £36 million that he would have had to pay, which he didn't have. So that was another really dreadful sort of vexation, tor torment of his final months of life when he's really, I mean, he's got really terrible cancer and is really a sort of wandering the world in search of a cure. And, of course, he could have died earlier in this terrifying attack which took place at Friar Park. And you you suggest that, really, if it hadn't been for Olivia, he might well have perished. I hadn't realised until I read your account just how many times he'd been stabbed. I think you say he was stabbed 40 times. 40 times, a lot of, a lot of it very near the heart. This was a... There's an awful sort of parallel, really, with, with the assassination of John Lennon, because it's so, someone who had been a fan and somehow or other got it into their head that uh, been a very been a very, very obsessive Beatles fan, but somehow formed the idea that the Beatles had betrayed the ideals that they had pl seemed to plant in the world in some way or another, or perhaps betrayed their fans by just not continuing as the Beatles. And that was Mark David Chapman, who shot John outside the Dakota building. And this other man who got in, who, who penetrated 
a lot of security because after John's assassination, George had a lot of security installed at Friar Park. This man managed to get through a blind, past a blind spot in the CCTV cameras, and into the house. And he had a he had a knife, and he also had a a, a sword from a a statue of. Uh, St. George and the Dragon, so he had a bit of St. George in his hand to try and kill George, or try and attack George with. And Olivia came along and actually whacked the bloke with a, a standard lamp, with a heavy base of a standard lamp. Didn't really... She herself was rather badly hurt, and the police were there in a moment. But it was a horrifying attack. And it could have been, yes, he could have been the second Beatle to be assassinated. And he never really quite recovered from that. Took took months and months to, to recover, never quite did. Mm-hmm. And then the second and much more serious bout of cancer came, which from which there was no remission at all. Sunrise doesn't last all morning. I just want to go back in time now because really you say, well, you quote him, I think, saying that the only person that ever impressed George was Ravi Shankar. And I was wondering whether you could expand a little bit on that and explain or theorise a little bit about what you think the dynamic of that relationship was. Was it one of student and teacher? Was Ravi Shankar, in effect, the guru that the Maharishi was not in Rishikesh? Well, George had come to the had come to Indian culture and classical music uh, Quite, quite gradually, he, 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 there was a sort of uh, exotic instruments cupboard in the stu- recording studio at Abbey Road. And when John recorded this song of John's, which is like a, a Harold Pinter play in miniature, uh, <laughs> Norwegian wood, which is really a confession of marital infidelity, that George fir- uh, John first played over to George Martin while John's wife, Cynthia, was sitting there listening. Mm. Now, I, John could be like that, unfortunately, mm. sometimes. George, just by picking out the notes on the guitar notes or sound-alike notes on the sitar, also in the film Help, which is full of the most dreadful sort of racial stereotypes and caricatures of a, a supposedly murderous Eastern sect of his pursuing Ringo because of one of his rings features in some kind of sacrificial ritual. I mean, terribly bad taste, awful stuff. Now it seems, but in those days was thought absolutely hilarious. But then George gets drawn much more seriously. And actually, Ellis, taking LSD also played a part in this because firstly, it brought him closer to John, where John didn't think of him as just that bloody young kid, which he had done for so long, mm. because they were actually taking LSD together. And it was, of course, a social thing to do with LSD. You had to be with someone else and to look after one another. It was, you know, they did have that sort of caring dimension about caring and sharing dimension. 
And George, in the course of one trip or coming down from one trip, seemed to hear a voice whispering in his ear, yogis of the Himalayas. <laughs> and he saw that really as the world of Indian culture, meditation, calling to him. And he, he in the end, wanted to meet Ravi Shankar, who was the great virtuoso of the sitter, but a very, very unassuming man and a very, very gentle sort of individual who just impressed George more than probably anybody ever had in George's life because he see he was so brilliant and so quiet and unassuming. Ravi Shankar did become his teacher, was actually quite a hard teacher and it was a, hard, a very hard instrument to learn apparently. You, you sit in what is first a very alien sort of position bal balancing this large instrument you know, in an unfamiliar way, not like a guitar at all. And Shankar was quite a, a, was very strict and insisted that the, when George got up and stepped over the sitar, Shankar wrapped him across the leg and said, you treat the instrument with respect. And George listened to him. And from that really came perhaps the first time he really felt he had a sort of edge in the recording studio because very Indian-sounding George songs began to get on to Beatles albums that gave him a sort of precedence in the studio. And he would bring in his own musicians to do that. And in fact, it, it caused, I mean, it actually produced quite a sort of wave of other bands, mm. you know, like Traffic, using the same instruments. And, you know, for quite, quite a few months, the, no hit really was complete by a band without a mini raga at some point. Do you think that there was a spiritual dimension to their relationship as well? I, well, yes, George did learn. George learned nothing at school, but he learned an awful lot when he wanted to learn, which was with an adult. He learned very much from other swamis too and by reading books as well and would go... Ravi Shankar had a, had a place in what is now called Mumbai, which was like a, an academy, and George would go there. And, but it was an immer and then Shankar's family as well also. He learned a lot from Ravi Shankar's family. So he really learned an, an enormous amount, as well as just how to play the sitar, which in the end he could do and play other instruments too. But I think also there's something quite profound that Olivia says at the end of his life, that he had been preparing to die for a long time and that you can't just prepare to die at the moment of death. And I wondered whether you think the spiritualism of, of Indian culture and of being in the orbit of someone like Ravi Shankar is what gave him whatever serenity he did, in fact, manage to achieve, despite the fact that he would snap at people and that, as you say, he was more uptight after meditating. Do you think that Ravi Shankar was the sort of the person who really touched him spiritually the most? Well, it's hard to say because there was another, um, there were some other uh, swamis, he bought them a big house as well. And then he was very involved with the Hare Krishna troupe too. Ravi Shankar was a very, very profound, uh, yes, influence on him. And of course, played in the concert for Bangladesh and also played at the memorial concert for George a year after George's death. Mm. But again, you know, the, you can't just say he was, he became spiritual because he had this, he still, you know, practiced uh, what the Beatles always had, which sex with other women doesn't count on the road. And George would go off 
he, he would take a he would go to a, a fashionable bar in uh, New York called Max's Kansas City with a pocket full of rubies. Yes. And if there was a, a woman he liked the look of, he would just lay a ruby in front of us like someone betting on roulette, except his number always came up. He was also passionate about, you know, one of the probably the least chic figures in the canon of British musical, popular musical history, which was George Formby, who played the ukulele. And George was passionate about the ukulele and wanted his fellow musicians in the Travelling Wilburys to play the ukulele as well, which they all did. And actually, Eric Clapton couldn't stand the ukulele, and that was really the end of their friendship. That's right. That's hilarious. That anecdote that you tell about Clapton absolutely saying, no, sorry, not that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And George, again, so very, very contradictory. When Clapton's four-year-old son falls out of a high-rise window in New York, George and Olivia are very, very, very supportive and tremendously good to Clapton, who's completely... It's the first time Clapton's really collided with real life in any sort of way, because everything at that point has been easy for him. And yet when they do a tour of Japan and Clapton is a recovering alcoholic, George doesn't make any attempt to stop drinking in front of Clapton Mm. or to respect the fact he's a recovering alcoholic. So wherever you look, there is a total contradiction in George. There really is, isn't there? Why do you think that he waited so long to have children? He didn't have children with Patty. He had one son with Olivia. Why did he leave that so late? Well, I think, uh, I mean, Patty certainly would would have loved to have a family, would have been an absolutely wonderful Mm. mother in the sort of old, you know, woman of such resourcefulness and such humour Would any child would be lucky to have as their mum. I don't think it really sort of came... It didn't occur to him when he was with Patty, and then he it, it actually did. So it was a tremendous humiliation for him because you know to to be a Beatle and be walked out on by your wife, which is what happened, was a huge humiliation. But he found someone who 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 in Olivia who knew how to handle a rock star, which is more than just handling George as a person; it's handling this entity as well. And it wasn't too long before, you know, she was quite a bit younger than George and it uh, wasn't too long, but I, who can tell why, why no more followed? I don't know. We can't finish this conversation without mentioning the fact that there is an Australian dimension to George's property portfolio. Oh, yes, yes, he started. He was trying to get as far away as possible from the human race. I mean, trying to find <laughs> privacy and he tried it on Maui and that didn't work. And, just, and then this property, yes, at the barrier, off the Great Barrier Reef, and absolutely it's a wonderful place. But even that, in the end, he was, he was tracked. People tracked him there and he, he never really found the sort of privacy that he was looking for, even there. No, it's ironic, isn't it? Wherever he looked, it, it proved to be elusive. Finally, I just want to ask you, Philip, you seem to be quite ambivalent about the rock bio genre itself. You say that in the UK it tends towards flippancy, whereas in the US it tends towards the reverential. Why is this genre so difficult to get right? 
because it's not easy to do uh, uh, to, to write about you know popular music and to bring it to deal with all the dross that you have to deal with as well as you know the wonderful characters and the bizarre experiences and the exalting music you also have to talk about record charts and sales and that sort of thing it's very very hard to make that in to make a sentence like the record went to number 3 in the billboard top 100 to make that sentence at all interesting is really, as I've just demonstrated. And, but people think that it's easy to write about music. It's not. It's really the hardest thing to do. And I think more absolute bilge is written about music than any other subject except maybe food. <laughs> and, and would you say that in the course of writing this biography of George that you came to like him more by the time you'd finished it than than when you started and can you pinpoint if there is a moment when you changed your mind about him can you pinpoint when that might be i think first of all it was the complexity of the character that drew me in but then sympathizing with him i think was what he was often quite dislikable and could be horribly rude horribly deflating nearly wrecked the Beatles' chances a couple of times with the most tactless thing you could think of to ever imagine anyone saying in those circumstances. But really just sympathising, I think. But I treat these books very much like a sort of... I was a novelist and still am occasionally, very much like a sort of Dickensian novel about extraordinary things overtaking quite ordinary heroes. Well, I know that you've you've said in a piece that I read in The Guardian, don't ask me when I'm going to write about Ringo. That would not be a book so much as a booklet, I think. <laughs> Philip Norman, thank you so much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. There may never be a Philip Norman biography of Ringo Starr, but the fascination with the Fab Four will never abate. And thanks to George's first wife, Patty Boyd, Norman has plenty of fresh material to work with. I do wish Olivia Harrison had spoken to him, though, because her version of who George became when he had shed his Beatles persona would be incredibly valuable. Incidentally, Paul McCartney disliked shout so much that he took to calling it shite, but despite that, it has endured and become a classic of its kind. During our conversation, Philip Norman told me that he believes in biographers' luck, but said it was something you both hoped for and made yourself by leaving no trail unfollowed. He credits two sources who helped him uncover the complex extent of the fraud perpetrated against Harrison by crooked management. It took some forensic accounting to get to the bottom of. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced on Darawal Country by me, Caroline Baum, and by David Roach for Two Heads Media, and edited by Kira Jordan for Pipewolf Media. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown.